0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Kate Lever who is an old friend. We spoke about friendship and mental health. She has a book out about friendship which is well worth buying and we talk about that in the episode. Uh, I will now plug a few things if you want to skip ahead a minute or two. It won't be long. Uh, I just wanted to thank my Patreon subscribers for making this possible and for being so lovely. I've been doing a bunch of q and a's recently question and answer sessions and i will try and do um, as many more of them as you want and give you what you want on that platform because it's uh it's such an incredible support uh, for what i do and as well for me emotionally to know that people uh, like the weird stuff that i do it also makes it possible for me to say no to ads Uh, which have been offered to me and even though in this instance uh, the last couple of times I've been offered ads they've been products that I would probably be all right supporting. I feel like keeping this independent of commercial interest means I can talk about difficult things, I can discuss uncomfortable subjects without feeling worried about what an advertiser or a corporate interest is going to think or whether it will reflect on them and therefore make the relationship more complicated. I don't like having to think about that stuff because I think the project of this show, which is to have difficult, delicate, compassionate, rational, thoughtful conversations, requires sometimes addressing topics that are sensitive and sometimes addressing them wrongly you know I don't always get my facts straight sometimes I change my opinion or sometimes I'll come out with a deliberately provocative opinion to sort of test it out and I think that you know where I'm coming from and if you don't agree then you know my Patreon subscribers or people on Twitter or emails that I get are always really thoughtful and engaged and interested and take take the things I say in the spirit in which they are meant, which is to bring us all forward and to make it possible for us to talk about these things in a useful way. Uh, But without that, you know, I mean, without that understanding, without that nuance that you guys have, if you are just a corporate interest, it, it feels more dangerous for you. I mean, and it is more dangerous for you. People don't engage with a company in the way that they engage with a person and I have been so lucky so far that people for the vast majority of feedback I get is positive and thoughtful people don't take me as a symbol of something else and then attack that thing by attacking me um that is that's so I know so many other uh, comedians and performers and thinkers and speakers who don't get that gift and you give it to me every day every email I get alisrfraser at gmail.com every tweet I get at alliterative a l i t e r a t i v e every Patreon comment I get is a is a I would say blessing if I were religious but it's it makes me so happy because I I don't have to deal with that every time it happens, and it does happen when someone, you know, calls you something horrible. It's a, it's a shock, and it's a surprise, and it's nasty, and it's not my life. It's not the most part of my engagement, and for some people, it really is. Uh, so I cannot express how grateful I am to you for that. Um, all right, I said this would be short. It hasn't been. I've been blithering. Listen to me talking to Kate Lever. That's what's happening now. Uh, You're having tea with Alice. I'll see you next week. Bye.
1: So who are you and what are you drinking? What am I drinking? My name is Kate Lever, mm-hmm. and I am drinking a very fancy pink tea called the cu- the courtesan. The courtesan. The courtesan. I believe it has blueberries and raspberries and strawberries in it, which are some of my favourite things. Why do you think it's called the courtesan? You know, I don't know to be honest. I haven't thought about it in these five minutes since we ordered. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate the name. I recently had a cocktail called the dizzy duchess, so I'm obviously just on somewhat of a streak of so. ordering fancy. Sounding drinks, fancy
2: sounding. It's funny how courtesan is a fancy sounding.
1: It is a fancy term. Thing think. Yeah, given that
2: most words that mean whore are denigrating. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean, though. It's the fanciest of the whores. <laughs> yeah, I guess the geishas had a kind of a, a pass on that, culturally speaking, as well. That it was kind mm. of a respectable or um venerated career choice. Yeah, because yeah. it, it implies not just sexual services but also some sort of cultural expansion or glamour yeah absolutely courtesan is, is is glamorous
1: i wonder what flavor geisha tea would be
2: i mean they have a geisha tea Do here they? yeah maybe oh, you should get stop that it. next i'll get it next time work your way through yeah. <laughs> all of the <laughs> respectable sex workers of history um there's a book title
1: i would read that so you've put out your book yes how does that feel um Yep, so my book came out almost a year ago now um, Mm. in Australia and the UK and it felt pretty great, to be honest, and continues to feel quite lovely. Mm. Um, Writing, I think it was 83,339 words in the end and that is just a huge output, just many, many, many words. I often sit down in my career as a journalist and write, you know, a thousand words at a time, but, you know, 80 times that is huge, it felt gargantuan to me um, so really um, I kind of tied a nice little ribbon on the end of writing that as where I would measure my success and self-esteem um, so I consider the fact that I wrote a book like a pretty cool thing yeah, and it's when a phenomenal I had thing it, yeah, when I handed it in I just felt really kind of relieved and exhausted but also kind of triumphant and mm. um, and, and then that's sort of the beginning of the process in a way. Yeah, absolutely it is. It's weird because then it just takes on a life of its own and people tend to sort of forget you a little bit in the publishing process and they forget that you created it and there's all sorts of, you know, designers and proofreaders and publishers and all that sort of thing involved. Right? How, how uh, stubborn were you about changes? Um, you know what, I, I was thinking about that this morning oddly. Um I wasn't too stubborn because I'm generally quite open to an edit because I've worked as an, as an editor as well. I kind of appreciate the process and I, I get frightened when people don't edit my things um, mm. in a journalistic capacity. I would much rather have that buffer and I really trust a good editor and I really enjoyed my editor. I My editor um, from my Australian publisher was the one who was doing most of the work on it mm. um, and I really enjoyed her feedback. But then the copy editing and the proof editing where – so the, the copy editing is really um, big on detail. So that's word choice and the logic of your ideas and the sequence of your ideas and, you know, shouldn't you add this and shouldn't you change this? And I felt really affronted by that. I swore at my computer a lot. I insulted the woman, not directly to her face or in an email, but just, you know, abstractly in my office, um, insulted the woman who was doing the copy copy edits because it felt... Like an insult and and an, aff- an affront. Um, what so. about it felt like an insult? That
2: you were wrong. That you yeah. had that that you had done something wrongly.
1: Yeah, a little bit. I guess it just it just felt deeply personal because so much of it was like. Is this really the word that you mean here? And I was like, "Yes, bitch, I do." Like, I just felt really—I found myself being strangely, like, defensive about it. I mean, I guess it's not strange. It's a deeply personal thing to write a book, and a lot of my book was quite personal. You know, whether it was about my life or someone else's life. Um, So, I guess I just felt. I, I guess the biggest thing was the fact that I spent, you know, probably eight months on my own with a laptop writing a book Mm. and then all of a sudden this person seemed to waltz in and say well this is wrong and this is wrong and haven't you thought of this and I was like hey this this belongs to me this this is my project and I sort of I guess I just felt um, alienated by someone coming in and, and criticizing what I'd done but it's such a, an important part of the process and I trust the process of making a book and I knew that had to happen. So I did, you know, cool my jets and, of course, like, accept most of the edits that were made. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just... It was an interesting process to going from being so alone in the process to suddenly having these people crowd in and talk about word choice.
2: Yeah, I feel that's an odd thing about... I think I would, I would rather someone say they didn't like my show than go in and say i could have done a joke better or a different way
1: yeah yeah i think i agree with you but i agree with you
2: i quite like editing people's work i quite like refining it i think the hardest editing job i ever did was a friend of mine whose brother had been killed in a car accident oh god uh, which was caused by a drunk driver driving on a suspended licence, and she asked me to edit her victim impact statement. Oh, God. I think that was the hardest, because then you really are asking, is this is this what you mean to say? Yeah. Is, is this <laughs> the level of heartbreak that you are trying to convey could be done
1: better in yeah. this turn of phrase? Yeah, I mean, but, that's just achingly sad, but ultimately an extremely helpful thing for you to have done. Well, it was interesting because she wasn't confident in her writing skills. Yeah. But, and she, but she did want
2: her writing to be powerful in that way. But I think that was the hardest, hardest piece of writing I've ever had to do. Yeah, I bet. Or editing, I guess. Yeah. That I've ever had to do. But, but I think the interesting thing about words is that they're never really precise. mm like they are quite words are blunt instruments, and that's the I think where art kind of has won over on on science or logic hmm. in communication, because art is about the way you put the words together that can create a kind of a direction or a momentum or a a, a gesture that the precise description doesn't quite cover. And you see that in the difference between watching the news and reading a novel.: Yeah, absolutely. Unless you are in a particular mood or are a particularly empathetic person, you will not cry watching the news. Mm. Yeah. But you will cry reading a novel.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And they could very well be covering similar topics, but it's the way that the words are crafted. I was, I think, about 10 when I was banned from watching the news. Uh Why were you banned? A psychiatrist. Well, I was having some kind of... Depression issues, and the psychiatrist my mother took me to t- to see said I was taking in too much of the world's sadness and that I mustn't watch the news. Wow. I don't think it was quite accurate. I think it was potentially much more a chemical problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're 10, yes,
2: then I think it's unlikely that you'll be being sad for, for a sort of a anything other than a chemical reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean... That's not what I mean, mean to say. What I mean to say is having depression is very different from being sad. Well, exactly. At that age, it's, you can be in really sad circumstances, but it is unlikely that you would become depressed unless there's a chemical kind of element to
1: it. Mm, yes. And isn't that a big conversation that most – you'd think most mental health professionals would understand that distinction, but – the more I go on the more I speak to because I write a lot about mental health and the more I speak to people who work in mental health whether that's in psychiatry or psychology or psychotherapy or just in general medicine the more I despair that there are people who don't necessarily understand the difference between depression and just melancholy yeah and that there
2: aren't I mean I, I, there aren't precise enough words for a lot of things including mm. depression the difference between a situational depression where you're just yeah. miserable because life is miserable you're you're living a bad life you're not doing something that is is good for you mm. it's it's a workplace injury yeah <laughs> and then there's a different kind of depression which is a chemical issue and there's mm. a different kind of depression again which is kind of having not processed things that happened in the past and feeling them all now when Mm. it's uh, safe to do so or when you can't refrain from doing so anymore. Like there are so many different – sexual assault is a similar thing.
1: There are other things that I think could do with more words. More words. We need more words. We do. And you're right about sexual assault. There needs to be more words because I think people have such trouble saying words like rape. And even, um, you know, the legal system has trouble defining it. Yeah. And so many women and so many victims of different kinds have trouble labelling what's happened to them and it's because we don't have enough words. And and because I think the, the amount
2: of trauma that is caused by a... a sexual assault or any kind of assault is is very individual. You can have the same attack on its face that does very different things to the person. Yeah. So somebody it can be this life ruining thing. They will never be the same again. They will never be able to live a normal life. They'll never be able to be to feel safe. Mm. But then you also have people for whom it's not the worst thing that's ever happened. It was a terrible thing that was done to them, but it's not worse than the time that something else happened. Yeah, exactly. And for them, I think, particularly when it's a complicated situation where they know the person, then it feels wrong to say, put this person in jail for 30 years, they've done this. Yeah. So there are kind of two levels. And most other crimes do have ways of kind of... Drilling down into both what was done, the crime itself, the, the perpetrator on the perpetrator's side, and then the victim impact side of it, and that'll go to sentencing or, or whatever that happens to be. This wasn't what I was planning to talk about at all. <laughs> uh, what that happens you, sometimes? What have you been
1: wrestling with? What have I been wrestling with just in general? Yeah. Oh, God, that's a good question. It's the question of the podcast. Yeah. That's, I mean, what are you unsure about at what, the moment? What am I unsure about at the moment? Hmm. I have to have a real think about that. What am I wrestling with? Do you know what I'm wrestling with at the moment, in fact, that I've had many conversations um, with girlfriends about at the moment is my own biological timeline. Uh-huh. Because I'm kind of – I've been – sort of ambivalent and conflicted about the whole prospective motherhood thing Mm -hmm. and the question of whether I will or will not have children. And I I suspect I will, but I'm suddenly, since turning 31, um, very aware of the proximity of those decisions. Like, all of a sudden it feels more real um, that I'll have to factor in my fertility and its expiration. Um, into my life plans and one of my best friends just moved over to London, which I'm obviously delighted about. But she's kind of trying to work out how to progress in her career to a point where she's happy to then go on maternity leave. And she's trying to work out whether she wants to be here or back in Melbourne and she's basically trying to you know, plan out the next decade mm. based on where she can be, when she can have kids and how she will be able to get to this career place that she wants to be she's incredibly ambitious and I've kind of been trying to apply that to my own life and trying to work out whether I want to be in Sydney or in London whether I want to be you know in a in a staff job or freelance whether I want to have kids and I'm just suddenly feeling like I wish I had an extra decade up my sleeve um to be like unencumbered by children
2: well it's an interesting thing at for most of human history not making the choice about children meant having children yeah that you if you didn't decide actively not to have children it was likely almost inevitable if you were married or if you were with a a person of the opposite uh, sex that you would have children yeah yeah um, the decision was kind of made for you. To a certain extent, yes. Or, or that the, the not making the decision, this refusal to make the decision or refusal to think about it or ambivalence would default to having children if both of you were fertile. Mm, yeah. And then at, at a certain point, very recently in terms of human history, it's sort of become the opposite. Not that people don't accidentally get pregnant but that that for the most part you know, contraception, contraception is pretty yeah. reliable. You get these long-term contraceptives, the uh, IUD, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, which is b- basically 100% reliable. And then it, you have to make the choice to have children. And the absence of the choice, refusing to make the choice, being ambivalent about it will mean that your clock will run out and the choice is made yeah. for you and yeah. the default will become not having had children, missing yeah. your window, as it were. But at the same time, we don't really have a good value proposition. Like we have this... I have this theory that I'm working on at the moment. A number of theories that I'm working on at the moment. (laughs) But uh, one is that humans are very good at mental arithmetic, but very bad at mental algebra. Okay. So there are certain things that we think are important, we acknowledge are important, and no one would say they are not important. Some would say they're priceless things like happiness or mm. motherhood or you know whatever that happens to be, and we'll put them in our sum as X. But in every time we do that sum every day, that X comes out in our head as zero. We don't factor it in as having a cost because we can't calculate it, mm-hmm. even though it might. Like well, in that in that sum, the difference between priceless and worthless is nothing, yeah, because we can't factor it in. If you ask anyone if it's important and they think it is important, they'll say, this is important to me. But when it comes to something like a job where you can see everything laid out in numbers and lines and years and mm. outcomes and promotions, you, it's a different, it's like it's uh, apples and rocks. You can't, <laughs> you can't put them, you can't measure them against one another. Yeah, They're not yeah. the same element. So I'd, I like I'd, that. Yeah, but I don't know the the solution to that. No, N- neither do I, I'm afraid. To just m- be able to measure things better.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, if we could work that out, I think we'd <laughs> be able to nail a lot of the different challenges of being human.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm torn between thinking we should have better measurements, more precise words for things and then also being kind of, I don't know, having a a reluctance to buy into increasing categorization when it comes Mm. to things like, you know, identity politics as a movement,
1: Mm.
2: getting more and more precise in our definitions of what kind of person people are. Yeah. Because I don't think people are really necessarily defined by one characteristic or five characteristics. Mm. Everyone's kind of in motion, in flux, and the elements of their personality that define them change oh, in every absolutely. situation. Yeah, yeah. So the more we kind of try and nail people down to types, even if those types become more granular, I think it's it can be crippling. Mm.
1: Oh, I agree. I've always ha- wondered about the helpfulness of labels because I think if you label anything, whether it's a personality type or an identity trait uh, or whether it's... You know, an illness um, or an experience that you've had when you label it, it can be wonderfully helpful because it means that you can kind of take away some of its power over you by identifying it. Mm.
2: It's something other than just you
1: yeah. being bad at it's being It's an external you. thing. Yeah. And it also helps you identify with other people who have that same thing. Um, and it can be wonderfully helpful in making you feel less alone in that experience and making you feel a little bit more in control of it, even if it's the illusion of control. Mm. But then by the same token, once you've labelled something, whether that's yourself or something that's happened to you, you're kind of stuck in that label. It's very difficult to remove a label like that, or to exist outside of it, or to get across any sort of nuance of maybe being this label and maybe not being this label. Like, it's quite an interesting thing. I think about that to do with mental illness quite often. Um, but it certainly applies to identity politics as well. Yeah,
2: and it's... it's. I think it kind of goes back to what we were saying before, which is that we have a bias towards measurement. A statistic measured is a statistic improved. Mm. That's a sort of a cliché for a reason, right? If you can pin something down, if you can identify something, if you can measure it, if you can put it into a hierarchy of value, then you focus on it. It becomes more important. The more able we are to measure things, the better we are at giving them attention and time and and, yeah. and power. Absolutely. That's why language is powerful, because you if you have a word for something, that is a powerful thing. So I, I yeah, like I said, I'm really torn between that because I, I think It's useful, but at the same time, it can be just terrible because who is to say this one identifying element of you is relevant in any given situation or should be relevant in any given situation? But if you're uncomfortable for whatever reason, if you're in a space where you're uncomfortable and you only have three labels that you could bring to bear in that situation rather than looking at the full complexity... yeah. Think it can lead you towards being more limited, or more afraid, or more something. Mm. I don't know if I've articulated that particularly well, but
1: no, I think you have. I think you have. I think it's um, potentially a very freeing, but also very limiting thing to accept a label or to label someone else. Because of course, you can label someone without their consent, which is all sorts of other types of problematic. Um, but I think it can be deeply limiting.
2: Yeah, I feel like I feel like what's happened is the ha- we have these non-consensual labels, right? People put labels on you because that's how people work. We we need to operate in that way. That's how we operate. You have to acknowledge the reality of the world. That's how people operate. And so you think, well, I'll take the label. I'll own the label. I will define my own labels. I will pick my own labels, and I will use them. I will t- mm. Having power over those labels then gives you more power in the world but it it doesn't fix the problem with labels the original problem it ameliorates it yeah yeah the problem is that labels are limiting and when someone else is putting on them on you it's worse than when you're using them yourself so using them yourself gives you some power but the whole system is flawed it's it's a it's a failure to take three steps beyond where you are now. You you want to solve the problem that's immediately in front of you because it's a real problem, but you haven't solved the actual problem. Yeah, yeah. You've put you know whatever it is, floaties under your house so you don't sink <laughs> in the flood, but you haven't solved global warming. Mm if we kind of make that as an analogy to the social situation you've moved further up the hill but you haven't solved the flood we've mm. moved to the second floor of the, i think even it's even less than that we've moved to the second floor of your house so your feet aren't wet anymore but the whole basement of your house is still flooded and i don't know if there's a solution to that
1: if it'll get better before it gets worse i would say it would get worse before it gets better yeah I'm saying that's probably true. Yeah, I
2: feel like I'm, I'm in a weird, you know, I've got two legs in two camps. I try and look at as many different wide, broad ways of thinking as I can because my job is to talk to people and need yeah. to what pe- know what people are thinking and talking about. But there are places, you know, Facebook groups that I am a member of or that I watch, in which the phrase <laughs> "I think some men are okay." is genuinely controversial
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah and
2: there are other groups where if you said i think some men are okay that would be equally controversial for the opposite, for the opposite reason. reason yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so how do you how do you work in that world
1: god i mean i'm still trying to work out how to work in that world because i essentially have you know the same function of, as my job talking to people um through written words i guess Um, so yeah, I'm constantly trying to work that out. Frankly, I don't have the answers, but it is, I mean, it makes me think of Twitter. What a difficult place that is in terms of saying anything about men and whether they're okay or not. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Or anyone. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then I feel like there's that thing about uh, sort of, what do they call it? Platforming. or or whatever it happens to be, these outrage moments Mm. where you have someone say something awful and then someone else pick it up and broadcast it. Uh, And their reason for broadcasting it is to draw attention to how damaging it is. But it is only damaging because it has been broadcast. Mm. If it were just left where it was, it would be to the dude and his five followers or the bot and its five followers or whatever it happens to be. It's like,
1: I don't know if you were bullied at high school, were you? No, I wasn't, thankfully. Were you? Yes. Yeah, I had a suspicion that you might have been. Not because you deserve to be bullied, but I feel like we've spoken about it before. (laughs) (laughs) I I did. I mean, as far as
2: anyone does deserve to be bullied, I did. I was a weird kid. But um, I I didn't do the one job of being at school, which is to get better at fitting in. I wasn't, mm. that's kind of what most schools are actually for, is to teach you how to yeah, absolutely. function in a in a group and to to know where I to just, stand off your edges. I was I,
1: just sick. I just basically didn't attend school for most of the time, so I kind of skipped any big tests of whether I fit in or not.
2: Yeah, that's a good way out. Yeah, it was a strategy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's the, there's the person who's talking about you behind your back, mm. and that is a bad act. That's not a good thing, and it can you know, particularly in a girls' school where everything's about reputation management, mm. then you have some damage as a result of that sort of unquantifiable damage in your social credit. But the person who comes to you and tells you, yeah. they're, they're the one who's dealing the direct Disseminating wound. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, there's a difference between if they're like, oh, let's stab Alice behind the bike sheds and then they warn you that's useful, yeah. <laughs> that's
1: useful. You know, yes. I,
2: I think there should be some of that assessment with, with yeah, people yeah. when they do this like, oh look at what this horrible person said oh, I'm outraged you know but basic repetition of something nasty is actually yeah. not
1: particularly helpful I don't need yeah. to know that you, th- that you think I'm a weirdo like I don't need to know yeah. that yeah it's better left contained
2: yeah, and we think we want to know. Hmm. I think we we do. We have this feeling. Oh, I want to know what terrible things people are saying about me behind my back. We have that hmm. impulse. But actually, I don't. I don't want to know. No, no. Well, you're better off not knowing. Like I, I know for a fact that there are people who don't like me. Okay. Yeah. They're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They are wrong. <laughs> or they're right. But also, I don't. You know, I don't. We
1: live in a big world. I don't need to be near them. But that, I mean, I feel like, like if we're talking about you know, women who went to all-girls schools, the idea of being okay with people not liking you is still quite a revolutionary thought. Mm. Like it took me a long time, it took my whole adolescence and, you know, part of my twenties to come to terms with the fact that not everyone was going to like me. Mm. And that that's okay. And that it's just not possible to please everyone. And that there will be people who want to say terrible things about you, behind your back or otherwise. And To accept that is kind of freeing. I mean, because we're just, as women, like conditioned so hardcore to be pleasing and likable at all times. And I feel much better about things now that I just accept that there are people who won't like me.
2: Mm. I mean,
1: you, I guess, would get more hatred than I do as
2: just a kind of a lump sum. Because people who don't like me don't come and see my shows. Yeah, that <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Whereas as in yeah. part because of this kind of dissemination practice, there are people who wouldn't like what you do, who deliberately seek it out. or to,
1: In order to tell me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then Absolutely. spread it among
2: their like-minded people who then also mm-hmm. are being exposed to something, you know. I remember the first year that I went up to Edinburgh Fringe doing Savage, which meant a lot to me, and bumping into someone who'd seen it. And he said, oh, I saw your show. And I said, oh, cool, thanks. He said, yeah, it's not really my thing, but it was very good. Oh, okay. And that Interesting feedback. Idea, he, it was a weird moment of going, oh, yeah, it isn't going to be some people's thing. Yeah. And he just won't come to my shows after that. Yeah, yeah. And that's good. Yeah, that is good. Get rid like, of the people. That's good that, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's a perfectly nice person. Yeah. Not in the market for what I'm selling. Therefore, he's not going to expose himself to it. Nobody's going to. Yeah, perfect. But. But if you write an article about whatever mental illness and somebody mm. doesn't believe that depression is a thing yep, and then they spread it among all of their non depression sceptics yeah. <laughs> and then the depression sceptic
1: community comes down on you en masse. Yeah, yeah. How do you process it that? It does operate a bit differently like that. You're so true. Um, how do I process that? I mean... It's mostly okay. It's mostly been part of the process of me realising that I don't have to be likeable to everyone. Mm. Um, And I tend to now interpret it as somewhat of a victory when I piss a certain person off. Because I feel like if I were to get no reaction at all to a piece that I wrote... I'd feel like I wasn't making an impact on anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I've pissed someone off and it's someone who happens to be wrong about things, like categorically denying that depression is a thing, for Mm -hmm. instance, um, and that's relevant because that has happened to me, um, that actually pleases me now because I think, well, I've achieved something. I've I've said something that is true to me Mm. and it also happens to be objectively true. um, And I've made someone who holds a problematic view, in my opinion, um, angry. And I kind of prize that anger in some ways because it's a sign that something I've written has had an effect. Do you react to it? Do you respond to it? Do you engage with it? Um, It really depends. I reserve the right, particularly on social media, to just completely ignore um, someone who said something ridiculous to me, particularly if it's hurtful to me personally. I just mm. think it's it's cruel and I don't feel the need to respond. And I don't think I owe anyone a response, which mm. I think is an important thing for me to have realised because initially I think when I first started writing and putting my opinions in public spaces, um, I felt as though for some reason I, I must respond to every criticism or every comment made to me or about me. Mm. I, I don't feel that anymore. Um, however uh you know i think there's still part of me that like operates like a high school debater and it just annoys me when there's a point to be made and a point to be rebutted yeah. and i can't resist the temptation to reply to a, to something snarky do you think you can change people's minds through um, that process do you know what, I don't have time to individually change the mind of each person who disagrees with something that Mm. I write or say. Um, So I just feel that that is beyond my job description. So I don't tend to think of that as my intention. Um, It's more my immediate intention to just get that person out of my personal space, whether that's figurative or literal. Mm. Um, So it's usually just about batting away a pest Um, rather than trying to change the mind of someone. Because I feel like the thing that I wrote in the first place, if that didn't work, then it's just not my responsibility to like hammer a point home with someone who's not going to agree with me. Yeah, it should sort of speak for itself yeah like i was on i was on channel 4 news over here with this woman there was a a huge study that came out and basically said comprehensively once and for all by the way antidepressant medication works and it was like we've looked at all the other tests in all of science ever and they definitely work the end and um, I went on the news to talk about it as someone who deeply believes in the effectiveness of antidepressants. And I was like, no, duh, of course they work. That's why I'm alive. Um, and I, they put me on for the sake of balance with a psychiatrist who doesn't believe in antidepressant medication. And how, I mean, how? Well, how, I
2: mean, I can I can understand believing that it's over-prescribed. That's I can what I thought she would say, and I
1: was prepared for that.
2: Believing that it doesn't work for many people Same. or even for most people, yeah, saying yeah, that yeah. it is dangerous or that people's minds and brains are so little understood and so idiosyncratic mm-hmm. that it's rolling the dice and that it, we should be much more careful. I can understand that as a yeah. perspective. I think that's a totally... You know, reasonable position to take. Absolutely,
1: all of those things you've mentioned, particularly the overprescription thing, which is what I expected my opposition to say in yeah. this kind of television debate scenario. And that's an interesting discussion. Yeah, and that's absolutely, a discussion very well. valid. But she did not go there at all. She just started much more basic than that, and basically said that how that the placebo effect is so powerful that it. Sort of disqualifies anyone from being able to tell whether they've been affected by anti-medication, antidepressant medication. So she was after she listened to me say that antidepressants have basically saved my life and made me able to feel things like joy and happiness and the worthiness of living. Um, she basically said, "Well, how would you know? Because like, <laughs> because peop- normal people don't really know enough about their own conditions." Um, and it's not helpful for a doctor to say to a person there is something wrong with you. And I was like, that's you're talking about a medical diagnosis. That is so valid. I don't understand how you can possibly be in your industry and and not see that that's a very helpful thing to do, to diagnose a condition in order to treat it. Well, particularly, I think something like depression where the people that I know who've
2: had moderate to very bad depression, Mm. they're not the ex- their experience of depression is not one of irrationality. Mm. That they are not, their observations of the world are not incorrect. They're just very skewed. Yeah. In a world in which, you know, there is great suffering, but also uh, puppies making friends with Much turtles. loveliness, yes. They will always look at the terrible things. So they're not, they're not lying to themselves. They are just incapable of accessing the view from the other side of the room.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I, like basically because of the chemicals in their brain, they can't identify with the loveliness of a puppy making a friend with a turtle. Yes. You just lose the capacity to to feel that in your heart and So your for being. somebody,
2: to talk to somebody from your perspective of I'm just dealing with the world as it is, I'm a realist, mm. and have them go, no, there is something medical here. Yeah.
1: That's so helpful. I think helpful. that is incredibly useful, <laughs> incredibly helpful. Very useful information. Yeah, it was bizarre and I, I, I mean I kept my cool – In the television studio, but the point I was going to make is simply that I didn't feel the need to convince this one uh, nutty psychiatrist that she was wrong. I mean, I I would dearly have liked to have changed her mind Mm. and probably sworn at her, Mm -hmm. both of which I refrained from doing. Um, But I didn't feel like it was my responsibility to correct this one idiot. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's an attitude that I take through my professional life so i I don't feel it's my responsibility. Is that a natural uh feeling or is it something that you've had to kind of talk yourself into? I think it's a policy that I've yeah made over time I think I've had it's something I've talked myself into, mm. but I feel pretty strongly about it because I think I mean I could waste many many hours responding to people who don't agree with me on things like mental health, things like feminism things like toxic masculinity or any of the other things that kind of become relevant to things that I write about. Um, But that I think would mostly be a waste of my time. My contribution in the first place is the article or the book or the speech or whatever it is that I happen to be putting out into the universe. So I don't know. I mean, it's just my personal policy. I'm sure there are a lot of people who delight in combating you know, various criticisms. I just don't really have the time or the stomach for it. Yeah.
2: Not, you don't have to be all things to all people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: okay. I uh, we'll ask two more questions. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, one will be for the Patreon extra bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first one is where can people find you online? Where
1: can people find your work? Where can they buy your book? Okay. So the, the easiest place to find me online lo- online is just kate com. Um, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Kate I Lever. Dot, uh, Kate I Lever um, the I standing for Imogen, which makes my initials K I L, which I'm mm. quite pleased with. I'm A R F Alice Rebecca Fraser. A R F. It's mm. good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm easily findable on the internet. Yes, Lever, L E
2: A V E R. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. Thank you for having me.
3: Rifle doll, I'll rifle day On Monday morning when she comes in She hangs her coat on the highest pin Turns around for to view her frames Crying, damn you the offers, cry up your hands Loudy rifle doll, a loudy rifle day and when the boss he looks round the door, tie our ends up, door, first he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rightful doll, Lally rightful day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our hands up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Loudy right all, the loudy right